the next issue that our uh, authors take us through is relationship between apologetics and science, right? And so what is the relationship between uh, these two uh, perspectives and disciplines? And they say that classical apologetics generally try to maintain a balanced view of science. So neither uncritically endorsing it nor hypercritically rejecting it. They believe, the classical apologists believe um, that apologists should seek to show that Christianity is consistent with scientific facts and that this usually, though not always, includes comparing what Christianity says about the world and mankind with what current scientific theories have concluded. But notice, scientists can be wrong. And so the, the way science is applied by both scientists and non-scientists often leads to error. And so what this means then is that Christians should be cautious Right. And this is the approach that these classical apologists take. Christians should be cautious about endorsing current scientific theory too uncritically as scientific theories change. Mm -hmm. Right. And so uh, there's a warning there. Yes, you want to embrace science to a certain extent, but you don't want to embrace it uncritically because theories change and so, um, you know, you're, you might be left on, on a limb that's been sawed off. Right. Right. So, yeah. right. And for our YouTube overlords, we, we mean past science. We don't mean current science. Current science is not flawed. Currently, all things that scientists <laughs> have said right now are absolutely true, and they will definitely not change like they have in the past uh, two, two weeks or so. So, that's yes, that's, that's true. So. But if, here we can we can harken back to things like uh, geocentrism, and we can say, oh, you know, Christians were so easily to embrace geocentrism because the the idea was, well, you know, God's God of course is going to create imperfect spheres, and so all you just need to have is spheres upon spheres, and 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 that's that's the model. So uh, how many spheres there are, and whether there's ether in the way, um, uh, th- that that's that's a question that that can be. Um, uh, uh, talked about among the sciences uh but we can't we definitely can't question the spheres except then there are, there are these things called wanderers in the sky that uh <laughs> that seem to overturn the model and uh, science goes through this uh, period of revolution and that seems to be the case for our scientific conclusions in fact um uh, we could postulate from newtonian mechanics to uh, uh relativity and then even from relativity to to string theory um and then whatever might be next because uh it seems like small things and big things uh in the universe uh have a have a uh, we have a hard time uh with uh, with figuring those things out and so um all, all this might overend and so when we when we hitch our wagon and say um this is how God created with string theory, and then it's overturned. Well, then doesn't that hurt our witness? And 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 are we saying that uh, this has to be the case that that uh, that this science must be true? And to overturn it, then we're we're going to be outside the realm of truth and into um, I don't know worse than dogma at, th- at that point. Um, that that's uh, that's the warning uh, that uh, that's um, being attributed here. Well, Geisler, while finding much value in the scientific evidence for the creation and design of the universe and for the creation of life and mankind, is cautious about overstating the case. He says that since science is limited and progressive, we should not expect complete agreement in every detail with the biblical presentation. However, the amount of present agreement is striking. 
So again, uh, if God is a God of order, what will we see? Will we see things done orderly in the universe, in the supposedly chaotic universe where an explosion has created everything and uh, it's rained on the rocks for millions of years and a lightning struck it and turned the the ooze into something uh, that uh, can be single-celled and then turned into multi-celled and then uh, you know the the fish grows legs and finds a mate that's uh, somehow within uh, the, the the hundreds of miles that it it is and it also uh, evolves into uh, uh, asexual to sexual reproduction and then dinosaurs and then back to chickens and then uh, all these things so you know are are we are we saying that uh, that that can't be the case well uh, Geisler is saying we have to be careful with always being in agreement with that however. Uh, there seems to be uh, a, a an amount of order within the universe that we can attribute to a god of creation, and again, that's what uh, classical argument from from this uh, first leaping off point of saying there is a god, and then the second one is okay, exactly who is that god? And again, those things might overlap as well, uh, but uh, but that's where um, some uh, uh, classical apologists will make their case. All right. Um, and so uh, the next reference, uh, J.P. Moreland, he's, um, I think now he's uh, he's still teaching out there in California at Biola. Yes, and still going, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, he might be an emeritus professor now. But anyway, he, he's for many years uh, engaged in the most sophisticated analysis, they tell us, by any classical apologist of the nature of science and of its relation to Christian uh, theological truths. And so... They suggest that the burden of Moreland's extensive research and writing on science and Christianity can be summed up in four headings. And so they're going to walk us through each one of these four headings. Right. So why don't you start us off? Well, of course, the first one is that he argues against naturalism and especially scientism that science can legitimately be practiced within the framework of a theistic worldview. Scientism is the belief that science alone Science alone yields genuine knowledge or truth. And J.P. Moreland argues that scientism is self-refuting because the claim that science alone produces truth is not learned scientifically, right? <laughs> You're not titrating the scientific method out of a test tube. Uh, it, it's, it's a procedure. It's, it's, a, it's a way uh, that we uh, uh, find the truth, but it's not, uh, it of itself does not produce the scientific method. Uh, and 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 uh, right. you're, you're, you, so it's you, a it's a it's a philosophical yeah yeah exactly yeah, it's a philosophical claim right. about science right. it's not a, a, a scientific yeah. claim right yeah. yes so he documents extensively the various sorts of limits to science that preclude any sort of scientism right and so first he then argues against naturalism and specifically scientism because scientism says, you know, only science produces truth. Well, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Why Do you have we a study truth? for that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we get truth in all kinds of ways and the claim itself is self-refuting, mm -hmm. right? Secondly, uh, they point out that Moreland argues, um, urges caution in assuming uh, a naivety with regard to realist views of science. So mm -hmm. there's a distinction between realism in terms of how you view scientific theories 
versus some type of pragmatic or instrumentalist approach, right? And so the realist says, well, what scientific theories are supposed to do is to give us truth about the world, the entities that they posit really do exist, those types of things. So that's a realist approach. Science gives us real truth about an external reality, the world that exists. The instrumentalist, on the other hand, says, well, what is this notion of, uh, why are you worried about truth? As long as the theory works, <laughs> as long as it produces results and helps us to predict and explain, that's all we need. We don't need to say that it's, you know, it gives us truth about the world. So that's the distinction here that Moreland is trying to uh, uh, make here. And so what they say is Moreland urges caution in assuming a um, naively realist view of science. So although he thinks scientific theory should be understood along realist lines, right, that it gives us the truth and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. In the absence of sufficient evidence to the contrary, he cautions that in some instances we should be uh, reticent to grant that a scientific theory describes reality as it actually is, right? So he said he hedges his bet here. Yes, generally speaking, science, science and scientific theories, uh, you know, are aiming to give us the truth, and they often do, but... We need to be careful because uh, sometimes they don't. And so an instrumentalist view might might be helpful. So notice, if the theory attempts to explain, he uh, argues here, in totality, a phenomenon that lies outside the proper domain of science, or if it conflicts with a rationally well-established conclusion about reality, then the theory should be viewed as a construction. Uh, that does not describe reality itself. So then we have we can move over into the instrumentalist view about science. Well, it may not be giving us the truth, right, about reality, but it's helpful and uh, it's uh, you know it allows us to make predictions and that sort of thing. And so we can use the theory as long as it does that until a better one comes along. So that's that's this second notion that uh, Moreland. So they be cautious, he's suggesting, uh, about the realist view of science. Yes, in general, that's the aim of science, but sometimes theories don't do that. Right. So who knew science was so complicated? And again, <laughs> th th this is this is the 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 reasonable faiths, and so uh, the the classical model focuses on reason, and so of course they're going to critique uh, any uh, kind of view of of uh, scientific. Um, uh, one-upsmanship here uh, for um, being under the purview of of reason and logic. Okay, uh, the we've done two. The third one is that Moreland explores the various models for relating science and theology and explains why the two fields should be viewed as overlapping over against those who would protect religion or faith from science by regulating theology to the realm of values and spiritual matters. You know, we, we only talk about uh, theology on Sundays. Uh, we do our science on Monday through uh, Friday, and then everyone gets a day off on, on Saturday. Well, nope, he says that uh, um, instead of uh, uh, regulating those two, uh, uh, the realm of values and spiritual matters, he insists that theology does deal with some aspects of the physical world such as the creation by God, right? Uh, uh, Genesis one. Let's let's start there. What 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 happens uh, in the beginning? God creates. Oh, okay. Well, now all of a sudden we have to do science. We have to figure out uh, how the world uh, operates and exists, and 
uh, how we can harness it. Uh, and so we're, uh, by, by those questions right there, uh, we're already through uh, Genesis 1 through 3. Well, thus, yeah. science and theology really do interact on common ground and effort must be made to reconcile or, or integrate science and theology. You can't just have their own spheres. They must, uh, they must be uh, in some way uh, overlapping, simpatico, uh, uh, in relationship to, uh, to each other. All right, so notice what we have here. We've seen now at least three approaches with regard to the relationship between uh, uh, science and uh, religion, we might say, or, or Christianity, right? First approach was this conflict approach where they you know, are at odds with one another, right? The second approach, which um, Moreland here criticizes, is this approach that says, no, they're really not at conflict because they are you know, dealing with separate aspects of the world or of reality. Uh, science with facts and religion with values. So that's a, a, a second approach, right? This kind of separate approach that each one takes. Moreland doesn't agree with either of those two approaches, that they're in total conflict or that they totally separate it in terms of what they deal with. His suggestion is, no, there's an interaction between science and um, and religion and Christianity. And so we should use both to help us to see, to get a, a full orbed picture of the way the world is, right? So this interactionism uh, is, uh, or integration, we might say, is what Moreland is arguing for here mm -hmm. in this third position. All right, and then finally, uh, Moreland argues that creationism, right, can be a legitimate idea within the discipline of science. And so this is a really big claim. This actually has been um, argued in court. At least two major uh, arguments in court, one in Arkansas, the other in Pennsylvania. And um, in both cases, design was being asked to be part of uh, the scientific curriculum. And uh, folks were arguing, no, it's religion and not science, right? Mm -hmm. And so Moreland argues that creationism can be a legitimate idea within the discipline of science. He, his main contention here is that science should not be defined in such a way as to exclude creationism a priori, right? That is, we don't even consider it uh, from the discipline of science. His approach to science well illustrates the central method of classical apologists. He, his objections to scientism and naturalism, as well as to definitions of science that exclude creationism, focus on the question-begging and self-defeating nature of these positions, right? So notice, Mullen would argue something like this. If you say, well, for instance, uh, that uh, this idea that there was a designer that created the universe based on the observations that we made. Well, there are folks that argue, no, no, you can't say that because that's religion and not science right. when we're dealing with science. And Moreland argues, no, not what we should be doing with regard to science is coming up with the best explanation whether or not it, you know, the scientists agree with it or not. What is the best explanation for our observation? And if the best explanation is a designed universe that implies a designer, then that should be part of a scientific explanation. It mm -hmm. is the best explanation, and that's what science is after. 
So that's kind of uh, this fourth point that they're trying to make here with regard to Moreland and his argue, arguing that creationism can be a legitimate idea within the discipline of science. Right. Or you just have to argue that uh, there's been no scientific break, breakthroughs until, what, the Enlightenment or Darwin or, I don't know, the 1900s, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, and clearly that's not the case. Okay, well, we've we've uh, kind of hit various points, but now we're on to uh, revelation confirmed in history. Okay, so we're we're uh, applying the classical model uh, of 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 apologetics that Christianity has some sort of role in our uh, our history. According to the classical apologist, history is important to apologetics because it is in history that God has revealed Himself. As Warfield explained, Christianity is not a religion of ideas that is of some timeless eternal varieties, but it's rather a religion of fact. To show that Christianity is rational, then, it is necessary to show that God has revealed himself in history, specifically as recorded in Scripture. So again, uh, you know, uh, people kind of want to have um, a, a, um, a pick-and-choose uh, variety. Oh, you know, uh, Confucianism and, uh, and Jesus kind of sound similar, and uh, those are kind of good um, uh, philosophies to live by. Uh, you you live at peace with people, and so I'm just going to take that. and And there's truth. Uh, it it it's kind of a, a it works model. That's not what Christianity is. In fact, uh, w- without uh, uh, being rooted in history, um, those uh, th- those things are just uh, fortune cookie uh, uh, things that you find in our American made uh, uh, processing plants for our Chinese food. That's uh, <laughs> uh, even an American invention there. But logically, before that can be shown, one must know that it is possible for God to have revealed himself to show us in history. At this point, the modern apologist confronts the question of whether historical knowledge is even possible. Right. So the issue here is what's the relationship between apologetics and and history? And the problem here is that... um, you know, often, sometimes anyway, history can be seen as some type of uh, subjective way of viewing the past where I pick out the various events that I want to explain. Right. And so it's very, uh, you know, it's very subjective and it's not, there's no objective view with regard to history. And so what they tell us is that Geisler, for instance, addresses the supposed subjectivity of historical knowledge by arguing that scientific knowledge is conceded to be uh, possible despite its subjective dimensions, right, of the scientific enterprise. Mm -hmm. So even scientific knowledge has subjective uh, dimensions. Scientists choose what area they're going to cover and they pick out, you know, the various theories that they think they want to uh, examine and confirm and that sort of thing. So we might say, well, science is... Subjective as well, right? So there are dimensions of subjectivity in science as well as in history, right? And so they suggest that Geisler admits that no human historian can be objective uh, if this is defined to mean possessing absolute knowledge. Right. But historians, historians, uh, uh, you know, historians can have an objective view of the past if this is understood to mean quote, a fair but revisable presentation. So you can't have, uh, to a certain extent, an objective view of the past. It isn't all subjective as long as you work it like you do a uh, scientific theory, right? Here's my theory of the way things are, but it's um, 
subject to being revised based on more facts coming into the to mm-hmm. the issue. Right. Um, you know, uh, who started the Civil War? You know, was it was it the, the, those uh, who fired the first shot or uh, the, those that goaded them into it? And so, um, you know, you have to you have to evaluate. You have to be uh, willing to uh, be revised on it. Uh, and there are some people who, uh, you know, r- write that uh, big historic uh, historical uh, uh, book that uh, gets them all the accolades and they don't want to move from that position and someone comes along and challenges that position, it's hard for the historian uh, who has the accolades to kind of put that aside because that's what they've made their their name to. And, you know, what does that say about uh, their their next uh, big work if, if uh, if you know, the, the amateur historian uh, finds that, uh, no, it was actually uh, the, the other side that fired the first shot. And, uh, that that's what kicked off everything, and so it's it's knocked down the 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 main historian's tower, and he, he's he can't show his face uh, again, or he can't uh, sign those books uh, any, anymore because it's it's all false. So uh, we talked about this in in uh, in how to be an atheist, which Mick Stokes about how uh, we have to be careful when we say uh, scientists say, well, uh, or the science says, it says well, no, scientists say, and so scientists should also. Uh, be willing to kill their theories and that's really sometimes hard for people sometimes people hold on to those theories their entire lifetimes and and uh, are shown again and again to be incorrect uh, in the hopes that it'll come around and they'll be shown to be correct and so uh, historians have that same uh, built-in flaw as well and we're all people and sometimes it's hard for us to admit that that we were wrong especially when we <laughs> publish things <laughs> Well, Geisler denies that the facts speak for themselves. If this is uh, taken to mean that the facts bear only one meaning, one meaning, and they bear it evidently, he agrees that there is no so so-called bare facts, but insists that the meaning and facts bear is assigned to them by minds and do not emanate from the facts themselves. Again, you can look at the battlefield; you can see uh, one way or the other how things turn out. But it, again, uh, like like uh, uh, our our presuppositional model uh, it's it's what the mind um, does to interpret those facts and to, uh, to 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 call something good or or negative is depending on uh, uh, what's what's known and 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 uh, gathered as evidence under a, a worldview position uh, and, and Geisler is making that point here for for our historians all right so so notice what Geisler is saying He's suggesting that the objectivity of all knowledge of facts, including knowledge of history, rests on the truth of the theistic worldview. Now, how is that the case? How does it rest on the view, right, the, the truth of theistic worldview? Well, he says if God exists, then all facts are what they are because God says so, right? Because he can view all of the history and present and future at the same time. And we have a true if that's the case, right? We have a true and objective knowledge insofar as we accept the meaning of the facts as given by God. So God gives us the objectivity with regard to, you know, uh, history. So arguments for the theistic worldview then come logically prior to arguments about historical facts. Since our objective knowledge of those facts depend on our considering them within the context of the correct worldview, right? So yes, subjectivity, we can morph into subjectivity. We're looking at various historical facts, right? 
but we can eliminate that if we have the proper worldview. And Geisler is suggesting here that the theistic worldview, the perspective that God gives us, allows us to have objectivity in history. So that's uh, so. What is the relationship between uh, apologetics and history? Well, we defend the fact that God exists, and as a result of that, we can have a objective view of history because we can view history from a from God's perspective as He reveals it to us. Okay, and then uh, one of our final ones that uh, we cover is proof from experience. So how does our experience uh, um, inform from our classical approach um, the truth of Christianity? Classical apologists do not build their case from theism primarily on religious experience. However, they recognize that the Christian faith does not call people merely to believe that God exists, but rather to experience a personal relationship with God. Thus, if theism is to be defended as a more than academic theory, it is necessary to defend the fidelity and rationality of religious experience. For this reason, classical apologists take pains to argue that it is rational to believe that people can have experiences of God and that these experiences can result in immediate knowledge of God. And so, uh, you know, if you're talking about your miracles, if you're talking about your uh, near-death experiences, um, th those things can be uh, 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 logically based uh, as well as uh, evidentially um, based as well. Right. And so they give us an example here of Geisler again, right, in his book, um, uh, Philosophy of Religion. He offers three main arguments in defense of religious experience. The first one is that religious experience is unique, right? And that it differs radically from moral or, for instance, aesthetic types of experience. So religious experience is different than other kinds of experience, moral experiences and, and such. So first, religious experience is unique. Right. Well, and then second, the religious impulse, if not religious experience per se, is universal. Classical apologists contend that the universality of religious experience across centuries and cultures points to a basic human drive towards self-transcendence. Now, uh, uh, um, near-death experience tends to be more kind of in the evidential camp, but this kind of universality of uh, time, culture, um, and, and different types of experiences when it comes to near-death experience has caused uh, people to study it uh, as, as a, a, uh, a thing of history, as uh, a, a uh, scientific uh, uh, study point, and, and trying to conclude uh, whether or not these experiences are true. Uh, and, but the, this uh, kind of universal nature uh, across both uh, time and culture uh, seems to uh, uh, bolster the claims that uh, NDEs are, are, are a thing that is happening to us. And so um, scientists uh, and philosophers can disagree, you know, whether it's uh, chemicals released from the body that we're all experiencing, or it is uh, some type of um, uh, kind of universal concept that uh, points back to uh, religion. Um, but uh, something is happening, and so a uh, classical model could, um, could focus in on, on this. Well, classical Christians apologists affirm that to be real, this transcendent, uh, transcendental urge must be more than just a subjective progression or wish fulfillment. It must have objective and independent basis in something. So, uh, you know, you, you interview the woman, she was dead on the table, she floated above 
uh, her body, she reported, and she reported that uh, 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 a child's drawing was on top of the cabinet uh, that uh, no one could see. She falls back into her body. Uh, she recovers and she tells the doctors about this. They say, no, absolutely not. There's no way that that picture is there. Get a ladder, go up. And sure enough, there's the picture. OK, um, there's something objective and independent based on that. It's not just, uh, you know, oh, I felt like I was uh, I was floating. Uh, there's something objective there. And we do have those types of experiences recorded. All right. Good. So first, religious experience then is unique, right? It's different from other kinds of experience. Secondly, it's universal, right? It's been across cultures and centuries and that sort of thing. And then thirdly, uh, they argue that religious experience is too ubiquitous to be explained away, right? So it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Um, uh, Geisler uh, reasons that the evidential value of religious experience could only be discounted by making the radical claim that every person in the history of the world who claimed to have a religious experience has been totally deceived there. And, you know, obviously this would be an erroneous uh, and onerous uh, claim to prove. And so the uh, the conclusion that some reality exists that corresponds to the universal need for transcendence then still stands. And thus, notice there must be a basis in reality for at least some religious experience. In fact, for if even one religious person is right about the reality of the transcendence, then there really is a transcendence, right? So we have, uh, you know, it's universal, it's uh, ubiquitous, and uh, it is, um, um, you know, unique, and therefore uh, it's it's something that we can't dismiss is right. the idea here. Right. Right. And, and, you know, the, the, the other side can say, well, you know, uh, even Muslims have religious experience, even uh, uh, Buddhists uh, have this uh, kind of universality of experiencing a, a, a period outside their body. Okay, you know, let, let's grant that fact. But now we're having a conversation within a smaller subset to say, all right, things are happening and we have to explain them. So, uh, again, the, the, the classical model gives gives us a place to, to to sit at the table and talk about these type of experiences and whether or not they can all be explained away uh, 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 with a with a swipe of a hand would be difficult but it's it's something that um, that that has to give us pause that offers an explanation to just like how we can't discount the the planet wanderers out there in our uh, spherical model for geocentrism uh, there might be a case where uh, sure enough, those those uh, out of body experiences uh, could uh, point to the existence that, that God is real. Now, what God is that? We're we're now on to a different question, but we're just talking about the, the the facts of religious experiences. All right. Well, finally, in his debate with atheists, William Lynn Craig routinely ends his opening statements by affirming that human beings cannot. Uh, only know about God's existence, but can also know God by experience. However, he cautions, this isn't really an argument for God's existence. Rather, it is a claim that you can know that God exists wholly apart from arguments, simply by immediately experiencing him. From those who listen, God becomes an immediate reality in their lives. His purpose in citing the experience of God, then, is to not uh, is not to hold forth my experience as evidence to others of God's existence, but invite others to experience God. So again, 
Um, uh, if you watched um, uh, Stephen, um, uh, oh, I'm going to blink on his name, Stephen Myers on the Joe Rogan experience. Uh, and Joe Rogan uh, asked him about uh, why he was a Christian personally. And, and uh, Stephen Myers, who, who wants to talk about kind of uh, creationism or intelligent design, um, uh, uh, routinely said uh, that uh, he had a personal religious experience, but wouldn't hold uh, those those uh, experiences up to people as reasons why to believe, but there are reasons why he he does believe. And so if you want to kind of uh, see what Craig is talking about in this type of setting of, of not a debate, but a conversation, um, uh, that was a, a good episode that uh, Stephen Myers, who I always enjoy listening to, uh, was a part of there. Yeah, good. All right. So we've walked through now these various six questions with regard to the apologetics relationship. First, it's a relationship to truth uh, and then theology and then philosophy and then science and finally uh, historical inquiry and religious experience. And they've shown us now the, the perspective of the classical apologists with regard to these various questions. And so the next chapter, what they're going to do is get into the arguments that the classical apologists use uh, to defend Christianity. So that should be an exciting one and a helpful one. Right, right. Again, uh, there's a reason uh, that we picked this book. It's a reason that uh, we, we read it the first time. Uh, and so uh, hopefully you are picking up this book uh, and the links are in the description uh, below, both on uh, our video and then in the, the audio podcast and then uh, on our website, cavetothecross.com, where if you go there, you can find all the books that we talked about. Just go to kind of the middle of the page. It's right underneath all the links. You can click on the book uh, or the interview uh, tab and 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 um, there it's going to take you to that book and everything that we've done a part of it. Uh, there's all the short clips that are available there as well. Uh, we've been putting out reels because it was something I wanted to play with and that got a lot of, uh, of views. So, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're helping to diminish the attention span of the next generation uh, with <laughs> under 60 second clips as well. So uh, you can find uh, all those uh, as well um, uh, at our uh, various platforms as well. All right, so chapter six next time, and uh, hopefully you're enjoying this book as, as much as we are, and uh, um, uh, you'll join us to see uh, what exactly those uh, classical uh, apologists are talking about. So thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.